The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, bless your word wherever it is proclaimed. Make it a word of power and peace to convert those not yet your own and to confirm those who have come to saving faith. May your word pass from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and from the lip to the life, that as you have promised your word may achieve the purpose for which you send it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Luke 22 today, but first a couple just reminder announcements. Youth Bible study tonight uh, at 6.30. Uh, for those of you with kids and youth, they'll probably be meeting in the, in the gym. There's like a, a women's paint and sip occurring in the youth room, and, but they're going to be wrapping up around 6.30, so they're probably going to gather in here and then transition uh, over to the youth room. 20-something Bible study meets this Thursday here in the youth room at 6.30, and be sure to sign up for the picture directory. Owls, the uh, older, wiser Lutheran seniors, uh, meeting Thursday. You can sign up at the Welcome Center and get more info, information at the week at a glance. Uh, as I always say, uh, try to plug in somewhere. And um, you get place, uh, ch church becomes increasingly comfortable for you when you start to find uh, your people or people have stuff in common with you. So um, the older, wiser Lutheran seniors, uh, basically, I think there's a few people in there aren't yet retired. And then a lot of retirees and all, all the way, all the way up into, I think our oldest is probably Dudley Lusk is 95. Uh, but if you, if you ever want to have a great conversation, Dudley Lusk, is, he's got a lot of fun, a fun, fun wisdom and a fun accent. So, um, so you can jump into the, the uh, older, wiser Lutheran seniors for some fellowship this Thursday. Luke 22 today. Uh, we just kind of cracked the beginning of Luke 22 last Sunday, so I want to kind of back us up and get a running start with uh, Luke 22, verse 1, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By the way, um, it is freezing cold in here, and that's intentionally done to keep you awake. <laughs> it's very hard to fall asleep when you're uncomfortable, and that's the goal. No, I don't know what the problem is. I think there's a, does anyone know, is, is there heat coming at some point? Anybody know? There is heat coming. Okay. Unless <laughs> next week everybody shows up with like gloves and like, you know, ski mask and everything. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And so that's, so going all the way back to Exodus 12, you've got the Passover is instituted as, it's both like a period of time, like a week or so, like almost two weeks. So you've got the Passover day when they're supposed to like get all the leaven out of the house, but then it's also a festival. And all of it was actually instituted in preparation for the Passover event itself. So remember Israel is, is in captivity, bondage in Egypt, and God sends Moses uh, via the burning bush uh, into Egypt, let my people go, he says to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh keeps saying, sure, and then changes his mind. So God sends the plagues, and you have all the plagues uh, by which Pharaoh is not persuaded to let Israel go. And then finally, the last one, where God, God tells Moses, this is going to be it. So he, get, he institutes the Passover, and he actually, he says to do it with your, uh, like, uh, I think the, the, the line that's quoted in The Devil Wears Prada, uh, gird your loins. So it's, you know what that is? I only know this because I wear a, a dress on Sundays sometimes. Uh, an alb, it's called. So like that... If you don't, if you're wearing like a long, that long robe that you wear and you got that robe to cincture to tie it off. But if you try sprinting in one of those things, I haven't tried to do that yet, but apparently you'll just fall on your face. So what you want to do is kind of hike up your, 
your robe and tuck it into your robe so you can actually run. So that's gird your loins. Get ready to get ready to run. And that's the Passover, right? So we're getting ready to eat the Passover meal because in the morning when, when Egypt wakes up and all the babies are dead, we're getting out of here. And they're not going to be very happy about it. So get ready to go. So he institutes the Passover, but it's the Passover meal itself that is this, it's a picture of, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? The Lamb being sacrificed so that the Lord's people are brought from bondage into the promised land. They're brought from the realm of death into the realm of life. Angel of death passes over, so the Lord's people are given life. I mean, lots of tremendous imagery in the Passover that's ultimately fulfilled in the death of our Lord Jesus. So that's what's going on. Uh, it's in that, in that context. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death because they feared the people. Uh, so they were trying to do it in a covert way so there, was, there wouldn't be like a big uprising. And I think that's, oh, and then we, start, we got into Judas a little bit last week as well. Um, Satan entered into Judas, verse 3, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, one of the, one of the inner circle of disciples. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So he'd already made up in his mind that he was going to betray Jesus. Now he just wanted to figure out how to do it. And they, the chief priests and scribes, they were glad... They're, they're, they're happy at this. You see this kind of like sick, just the sickness in these guys. They were, they're happy that, they, that, that Judas had betrayed Jesus and now they could, they could kill him. They agreed to give Judas money, which we know to be 30 pieces of silver. Um, and we see greed put forth as a major idol for Judas that, that he would rather have this money than than his Lord Jesus, but it's not just that he chose money instead of Jesus. It's really, what are we learning about Judas's own belief about Jesus? Obviously, if Judas had a working faith in Jesus as God, he's not going to like sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe he would have asked for more than 30. <laughs> I think Jesus is worth more than 30, right? So what we're seeing in Judas, this confession, not just of his mouth, but by his actions, that he does not believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is, right? So he consented, and that word consent in verse six, Judas consented, is it's ironically from the same Greek root for homilageo, which is translated for us, confession. We confess the creed. So uh, the Greek homilageo is, um, you know, every Sunday, I roll this dry erase board in here, I never use it. So if I don't use it at least once, I'm gonna stop doing it. So um, I'm just gonna kind of transliterate. <laughs> Strike one. It's a little better. Homo, legeo, um, just to kind of put in, in our, our letters. Homo, obviously, same. Legeo, think logos. The word became flesh and logos became flesh. So to seek, the, to confess is to say, say the same. So when we confess our sins, in that context, I confess my sins. All I'm saying is the same thing that God says about me. 
So he looks at us and says, you're a sinner. We say the same thing. I am a sinner. So I say the same back to him. To confess the creed, to confess my faith, is to say of God what he has already said to us about himself. So he reveals who he is and what he's done for us in the, in the creed. And so then we confess, we say the same thing back to God, the creed. So with, with our confession, though, we are saying not only what God says about us, but we, we also make it our own. And by our giving our confession to it, right? We're drawing ourselves into it. So as Judas uh, consents to betray Jesus, we also, interesting, we see this confession, the confession of what he thinks about, about Jesus. Um, I don't say anything else on this. Why would Judas do such a thing? I mean, just imagine, imagine for Judas what's going on in his mind, because this is going to come up later when he ends up killing himself, which isn't in... It's not in Luke's gospel, it's in Matthew's. But at, on Easter morning, to take it off of Judas for a second and put it on the women who come to the tomb. Remember, they come to the tomb, they had, had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, the, the guys on the road to Emmaus, remember when Jesus kind of surprises them on the road and they say to Jesus, we had hoped he was gonna be the savior of Israel, we had hoped. So these pictures of the disciples having their dreams crushed, they, they thought he was, they thought he was the savior and then he proved not to be. And then Jesus comes and surprises them. Judas is like having that feeling sooner. So all the other disciples at this point, before even at the last supper and even as Jesus is portrayed in the garden, they're, they're holding out faith in Jesus as the power Messiah up till that point. That's why Peter wants to pull out his sword and get this battle going. And even as Jesus is betrayed there, they're kind of thinking, okay, when's Jesus going to finally kind of break out with all of his power? And then when he's finally crucified, that's when they give up hope. None of that's happened yet. So Judas is already in the mind. He's got to already be in the mind of the Easter morning women at the tomb or the, road, the guys on the road to Emmaus. That is hopelessness. If you're a Messiah, everything that you had believed to be salvation from sin, death, and the devil is gone. Because the problems are still there. Judas hasn't given up faith in, I mean, that's why he goes, that's why he's willing to betray Jesus. He doesn't, he wants the law. He, he's going to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's, he's, he's starting to be of the mind of the scribes and the Pharisees who sees Jesus as ultimately a threat to the, the true God's word of law. So he's, you kind of have pity on the, on the guy. He's lost his hope at this point. Jesus is no longer the Messiah. And he's not, only, he's, he's not only lost faith in Jesus as the Savior, but now he's actually angry enough at him to entertain the idea of betraying him. So it's not just apathy. He could have just walked away. We don't know his personal life. But he's, he's also the guy who's like running the, he's running the bank for the disciples. He could have just taken the money and pulled a, who's the, the pastor from like the 80s where they stole, steals all the money from people? It happened to a few different, Jer, Jerry Falwell, is that one of the guys? He's like, he, he had access to all the money. He could have just taken the money and run, but he didn't. He goes after 30 pieces of silver and then betrays Jesus. So lots of, problems going on in Judas. But Judas, he doesn't, he doesn't stay 
at the chief priests and the scribes. Because remember, he has to come back and betray Jesus. Now, there's, so it's not, so Jesus, so Judas, this is, this is coming up on Monday, Thursday night. In fact, it is Monday, Thursday night. Jesus is about to institute the Lord's Supper. And remember, after Jesus institutes the Supper, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, at which Judas leads the, the chief or the, the soldiers from the synagogue to come and arrest him. So, but, but Judas doesn't come straight from where he is now. Ju- Judas is with the chief priests and the scribes. He comes back to the Last Supper itself. He's one of the, the, all 12 are there gathered receiving communion from the hand of Jesus. Then Jesus tells him to go and do what you got to do. Because remember how it's not in Luke's gospel when, when he says, the hand of my betrayer is in the cup with me or something like that. Whoever dips the, yeah, whoever double dips the chip is the one who betrays me. <laughs> All right. So Judas consented, verse 6, and he, found, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. And that's all we will see of Judas until he comes back and leads the betrayal, so, or leads the, the, the soldiers to Jesus. I was talking to somebody earlier about this with Judas. Um, does Judas, is Judas in heaven? And just think through this. It's not even, it's not in Luke's gospel. It's, it's I think it's exclusively in Matthew's. When, when Matthew, uh, when Judas comes back to the temple, he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the ground. The priests say, that's blood money, get it away from me. And they go and they take that money, they buy the field of blood or something. And Judas goes and he hangs himself. And he falls headlong. I think it, in Acts, it's recorded that he, he basically rotted, his head rotted off and his bowels all gushed out. It's kind of a gross picture. But is Judas, is Judas in heaven? How are we to think about that? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, maybe it's just outright Judas is condemned. Um, what do you think? Very good. That's it. That's my, that's my uh, proof text. I believe it's also, yeah, it's in the high priestly prayer, which I think is John 17, when Jesus talks about how he is, like you've entrusted these to me, referring to his disciples, and I have saved all of them except for one, the son of perdition. So Jesus specifically refers to Judas as one who is not saved. My pastoral approach, and I encourage you to have the same approach as a Christian in this world, especially for the, Lord, the Lord's baptized children. When it comes to the point of death, I am very slow to say someone is in hell. Right? Because I don't know what's going on behind the scenes there. And I don't know what God's working on through the last hours of this person's life. Right? Um, and if I'm only going to make a decision about heaven or hell based on what I can see in the person's life before me, I might conclude that they easily conclude that they'd be in hell. And then put the question on yourself. When you're in the, gra- the grasp of sin at some point in your life, like, and, and then as you're yelling at your beloved mother on the phone or something, or, or, or yelling at your spouse on the phone and, and you're in the car, you wouldn't be doing this because that's illegal. You would be on the Bluetooth, obviously, but you're... Um, <laughs> 
Oh yeah, even worse, if you were on your phone to add insult to injury and then the Budweiser 18-wheeler T-bones you as you blow through the red light on your phone and you're saying evil things to your mom, you're just breaking commandments right and left. So then your pastor comes up to you and says, well, we know that this person's in hell because they were on their phone when they died. <laughs> now, obviously, that's silly. But the idea is if we're looking at the, the outside of a person and drawing conclusions about salvation, we don't want to do that because we're only going to be able to judge our outside by the law. And when the law's job is always to what? Always con- to condemn. It's always to show us our sin. So we want to be slow to throw the flag to say this person's in heaven or hell. And we want to be quick to say, well, they're baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord, when the Lord names something, it belongs to him. He fishes with a barbed hook. It's hard to shake him. <laughs> so, like, so we say we commend him to, we commend him to God in the same way we, we have spoken of us. Don't look at my life for certainty of salvation, but what does Jesus say about this person? Except for when it comes to Judas, what Jesus says about this person is that he's an unbeliever. Everybody else, really, in, in very slow to make judgment, to render judgment. I mean, unless a person is perhaps making a confession of, of uh, atheism up to the point of death, we're not going to force... We're not going to like artificially force words about salvation on somebody who's given a clearly opposite confession of faith, right? They, they wouldn't want that themselves, right? So we're not going to lie, but we're also not going to start saying, well, we know so-and-so's in hell because he was a rotten guy. Those are words you don't want spoken about you in your moments of rottenness, right? And, and ultimately, what kind of person does Jesus die for? Only one kind, sinner, right? So if you're, if you're a sinner when you die and you think that means you're going to hell, then why would Jesus die for, he only dies for sin? It doesn't make any sense logically, right? Um, Judas, though, the reason why it's, a, it's kind of an interesting conversation is when Judas, it's like when, in, when he sees Jesus being flogged, somewhere in there between betraying G- Jesus and Jesus being on trial and being flogged, the Greek in Matthew 27, I think it is, says uh, meta melomai. So it's translated, he had a change of mind. This is hard because there's a Greek word metanoia, the noose, the mind, the pneumatology. And stuff. So uh, he, to metanoia is to, our, we translate it, repent. Whenever we run across the word in the Greek metanoia, it will be translated repent and sometimes change mind, change of heart. And then it's what's translated in, in the English in front of you in Matthew 27, where it says Judas changed his mind. So Judas repented. And when, if, if, you're, if you're Judas and you repent, that is you acknowledge your sin and run to the mercy of God, and, that, and from that repentance drives you to have a life of repentant actions... What does Judas do with the money that he, he had from dishonest gain? He tries to give it back. So you see a lot of evidence of what seemed to be repentance there, but it's not, it's, not, it's not the same word as repentance. 
Because repent does not simply mean to change your mind. So to say, I, I was thinking A and now I'm thinking B, that doesn't mean repent. It's not like I used to be a Bulls fan and then Michael Jordan, re- Michael Jordan retired and then I repented <laughs> and stopped being a Bulls fan. That's to change your mind. Metanoia, repentance means I'm, I'm faced up against sin over here and I think this is my God. And then God turns me from sin to him, the living and true God who forgives my sins. And then I'm constantly spending my life turning back to sin and he turns me back. That's the life of repentance, it's back and forth. It's not simply changing your mind. So Judas just changes his mind on a particular thing. And, uh, and most, so it's not the same word in the Greek for repentance. And, uh, and ultimately what Jesus says is that he's a son of perdition. So I don't wanna, I, I don't wanna overdwell on Judas, but it's nice to, to think that through in case you've ever had that question. Yeah. Uh, well, so that so that that opens up a whole different can of worms. And since you don't want me to finish Luke twenty-two today, I'll go down that road. No, this is no, 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 no. This is excellent, uh, excellent question. If you didn't hear it, so and I, I didn't even think about this. So regardless of what Judas did, let's, let's even pretend that he repented of betraying Jesus. The last thing that he did was commit suicide. So he murdered himself and didn't repent. So, um, so he died with a, is a, a mortal, a moral sin? What do the Catholics call it? Mortal sin on his conscience. For which, from which he didn't repent and therefore go directly to hell, do not pass go. Right? And so there's a, there's a confused, and I believe, and I would argue, a very unhelpful teaching that, that, is, that has been in the church for centuries, and it's tied to Roman, Roman, the Roman Catholic view of, of um, what repentance is and how my salvation is tied to that. Um, and Luther, there's a famous scene in the Luther movie, which is drawn from an actual. Uh, conversation that Luther had with, with how he speaks of those who committed suicide. So what, what I'm going to do right now is kind of talk about the suicide question in general. I think that would be helpful. Um, so in the, Catholic, in the Catholic mind, when so Jesus died for my salvation. Jesus died to get me out of hell, but I don't, that doesn't get me into heaven. See, the different, we, we associate getting out of hell and getting into heaven as the same thing. It's two ways of saying the exact same thing. If I'm not in hell, where else am I going to go? Heaven. Unless I'm Catholic. If I'm not in hell, I'm not in heaven. I'm in purgatory. Purgatory comes from the, this is the idea of purifying by fire, to purify fine metals by fire. You, only, the, only the holy, only the pure get into heaven. So if you are a sinner... Jesus has died for you and gotten you out of hell, but if you're not holy yet, you don't get into heaven. Hence purgatory, the idea of a place to go for purification for this indeterminate amount of time until you're purified enough to get into heaven. But you can get that purification by getting, your, getting rid of as many sins as you can from yourself while you're still on earth. And then while you're in purgatory, somebody else can be praying or doing merits for you 
Or you can buy the extra holiness from somebody else. Mary had a, a lot of it. The, all the disciples had a lot of it. Jesus certainly had an extra. Well, that's the loser question. Whether or not they had, whether or not there's a purgatory at all, whether or not they had extra, how you get access to it, that's all part of the Roman Catholic system, of which we obviously, re- or which we obviously reject, right? But if, again, at the, at the time in the, in the like, uh, in the last, the first, I don't know, 1600 years of the church, uh, it was dark ages, the thought regarding suicide, and it's still kind of perpetuated to this day, is if I, if I die, I, after I've committed a murder, that's like, it's on me. And, I, and, and that, that's the kind of sin that's not only getting me in purgatory, but actually it, I throw, it bucks off Jesus and sends me straight to hell, unless I repent. But if I'm like fighting in the Crusades, think it would go back to the, and this is actually p- part of the whole concept of indulgences is tied to this. I know we're early for Reformation, but it's Reformation month, so it's timely. If, if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to get inspire an army to go fight against the Muslims who don't play nice. If I'm trying to inspire soldiers to go fight, I mean, in their mind was killing is murder or killing it breaks the fifth commandment. So we have to make a distinction between murder and killing because God himself institutes killing. Soldiers, police officers, right? So there's, so there is just killing and then there is murder. But for the, during the time of the Crusades, the guys are thinking it's, it's to, to be a soldier is to take a life. So there's no way to be a, a just soldier. So I've got this like conscience, this crisis of conscience that if, I, if I'm fighting a war and I kill him and then a Muslim cuts off my head in the back, I don't have time to repent and I'm going straight to hell. I might be better off just avoiding the whole war scene or maybe hang out in the back Whenever the general yells charge, I'm going to kind of be slow on the draw. And even if it causes me to hesitate, I mean, I'm no soldier, but I assume, I mean, just from watching Western movies, if you hesitate a little bit, you die, right? So I don't want, to, I don't want an army of soldiers who are hesitating. What we should do is give them the confidence that if you die fighting for this cause of the Crusades, you're going straight to heaven. You get out of purgatory. Well, now I'm more motivated to be a soldier. But what, if, what about the guy who's like 85 and can't render a sword? He can't lift the, the swords are heavy. But even though he doesn't have his youth, he has 85 years of savings that can help fund the Crusades. So while you can't render a sword and get access to the indulgences that way, into access to, to heaven that way, you can buy the same thing. Here you go. So you can buy that same, get into heaven. You see? So that, that's, all, that's all messing up the whole thinking regarding heaven and getting out of hell and so forth. So, so then you bring up suicide as this, if my last sin in that same system, if I don't have an indulgence or something and I haven't had a chance to repent, if I murder someone and I haven't repented of it, then I go to hell. If I murder myself, it's murder, then I go to hell. That's making my my going to heaven or hell based on if, whether or not I'm sinning when I die. So it's not just taking my own life, but again, going back to the getting hit by a Budweiser truck when you're swearing at your mom, right? Doesn't matter if you're sinning when you die. We're not looking at, we're not looking at that at all. Of course, I'm gonna be sinning 
at times. And, and it, especially as, our, as people continue to live longer, and all of you, and many of you probably have ailing parents, and dementia is starting to touch touches so many of our lives because, I mean, 100 years ago, you didn't live this long anyway. You're like dying by plagues or wars and so forth. But like, as your mind starts to go, the old sinful Adam comes out a lot more. Sometimes it's humorous, but usually not, right? And so usually at that point, that's when the beloved daughter will say, that's not mom. Mom wouldn't drop an F-bomb at the nurse. I'm not, I'm not joking. You may, you probably see it with your own eyes. Don't, you don't have to get mom off the hook like that. The old sinful flesh in mom would drop an F-bomb at the nurse, but she spent her whole life controlling the old Adam. That's what we try to do. But then when dementia comes and kind of like strips off the new man or my ability to control my mouth or my thoughts are all confused, right? So we see the old sinful flesh come out clearly. And this is a reminder of, yeah, she's a sinner. She needed Jesus. That's why, that's why pastor's here, right? She can't ask for her. Yes, yeah, right. She's not going to acknowledge her sin either, right? Or, or, the, or, a, or a whiny, narcissistic infant who dies as a child isn't asking for repentance either, right? So we, we want to look at, we don't want to look at that. We want to look at, we're going to cling to the promises of Jesus for sinners, which he delivers in holy baptism and he covers the, the, the Christian with. So regarding suicide specifically, Luther, Luther wrote that the, a, the person, the young man who committed suicide in that particular scene is, is not to be, shouldn't be considered any different than the, the guy who is going, walking through the forest and is overcome by robbers and they, they jump him and kill him and take all of his stuff. Now we're thinking that's it's quite different, but he's, Luther's on to the working of the devil and driving me to despair in myself and working on my, my thoughts to bring me to anxiety, to think there's no other way. And that's the devil coming up to me and driving me to these conclusions. And I mean, at times, we're spared of, from the depths of that despair. But there are also at times, unfortunately, those who give in to that despair. But if we start drawing conclusions about someone's salvation or their damnation based on what they were doing when they died, all of a sudden then you become really boring to be around. <laughs> you can't, you're just like, well, if I just, what if I just never move? <laughs> if I never, what if I close my eyes, I never look at anyone, I never, I never say anything, because what if I actually say something hurtful of Dennis and then I have a heart attack? So I'll just stop opening my mouth. Problem is the commandment doesn't just say don't say bad stuff, but put the best construction on all things, say good stuff. Not only don't hurt my neighbor, but help him. So if I tie my, my hands to my side so I don't hurt my neighbor, I also can't help him. So I'm not off the hook. I'm sinning by my inaction. So you're not gonna make the law happy enough like to think you're gonna get into heaven by your actions or inactions. So suicide's a good example of that. I mean, there's, I think there's practical wisdom, although I would argue there's a terrible idea because it messes up the entire picture of salvation. Don't raise your hand, but I would argue that most of you, many of you are probably told by your pastor when you were like in confirmation that if you commit suicide, you're going straight to hell. That's the unforgivable one. And that that doesn't comport with any of the rest of the scriptures. Think, I mean, follow that through. So suicide's the one sin that if you're doing that when you die, you go straight to hell. All the other stuff, though, those Jesus can forgive. See? Like what? 
It doesn't even make sense. Why would you tell a 13-year-old girl that if she, if she commits suicide, she's going to hell? Why would, you, why would you think about saying that to her? So she doesn't do it. You can't learn from that mistake. So it was, a, I think, a very well-meaning and a, uh, uh, a, very well, a very well-intended desire to prevent committing a terrible sin from which you couldn't learn. We get to learn from our sins usually. I mean, yeah, there's always repercussions, but suicide's one of those that you don't really bounce back from, right? So you're, maybe, maybe the idea was to try to spare a person from that. But I, I, back in the you know, pre-gospel era, I would say, like I'm talking pre-Reformation, that was, would have been a common teaching in the church to, take, to, to murder because it goes, it goes hand in hand with the whole indulgences. That's way off track, but a great question. Great, that's helpful. Any, any, we'll, we'll pause. I'm really bad about asking for questions. Do you have any questions that I could entertain that pertain to this topic? Any comments? Yes, see if you wait long enough. <laughs> can't chance it. What, but that's perfect. So you think about it like it, what that shows is if, if, if I'm finally, a person who commits suicide is someone who, let's say, you, just, you can make some different, you can, a bunch of different hypotheticals, but it's like someone who's despairing enough and doesn't have faith enough in God to take care of them or whatever their terrible situation. It, that it's, it's driven them to this total point of unbelief and then they kill themselves. As though... We all don't have moments of doubt and unbelief in our life, right? And, it, and it's, it's, it's looking, it's, it's in it funny. As, as Lutherans especially, we're like, we're saved by grace, not by works, except for the work of not killing ourselves. How inconsistent can we be? Now, again, I, I, don't, I don't like advertise this. I mean, especially these days, suicide's on the rise. And it's, I'll just be direct about this. If you've got teenagers, especially girls, you're doing them no favors by giving them cell phones, especially anything on social media. Like, it is the cause, statistically, of like this. When you look at like, when you look at the chart of, of uh, depression, anxiety, and then suicide amongst especially teenage girls, until like 2000, it was like always kind of about this flat rate or kind of rising until 2008, when the iPhone becomes more readily available. And it goes, starts to do this. And then all of a sudden you get things like Instagram and TikTok that are happening and just keeps going up. And then you throw on top of that, the COVID pandemic and everybody's like, what else am I gonna do? Get on my computer. And now all I think about is what other people think about me and what other, what other people are fa- posting things about their own life and I'm judging my life based on what's happening like in other people's life. I wish I could be more like them, coveting what they have, having no joy in my own self. And then God has been ripped out from their foundation by intentional assault from the schools and, the, and all of the culture. So I'm not standing on any kind of solid ground. What is the point of living? 
Why are we surprised that suicide's on the rise? You talk to, well, there's a few different counselors in the church and they'll tell you, in our church, and they'll tell you that like teenage, like teenage psychological struggles have just gone off the charts. If you want job security right now, go, go to school and get your degree in some kind of counseling and you can get a job anywhere. It's just such a need. And, and I, I would even add um, that a lot of that is because think about the, the major decline, because this, this is like an inverse picture of like church attendance amongst people, right? <laughs> and so if you don't have church, if you don't have God to stand on when everything starts crumbling, I need somebody to give me some peace. I got to figure myself out. So where do I go? I can't go to God because he's not there. Where do I go? The counselor. That's not, counselors are good. and They certainly have their place. I'm just saying they don't replace God. But if, if someone doesn't have God, where else are they going to go? So of course counseling is on the rise. It's terrible. So yeah, suicide, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's scary. It's on, it's on the rise big time right now. And we want to, or some, again, I'm sympathetic to the desire to try to keep teenagers away from it. Um, but the way to do it isn't to give them a, a lie that if they commit suicide, they're going to hell, but rather give them all the reasons why they should be living. Hold up all the all the good, reminding them of who their God is and prepping them for the reality that guess what? In life, things don't always go well, especially for the Christian, right? And that's just reality. Instead, we raise a kid on Disney that says, follow your heart, you can do whatever you want. You live your dreams. If you try hard enough, you'll, you'll go pro, even if you are a five, five and can't, aren't athletic at all. And then their, their dreams are crushed. What's, what, I can't, what's, life isn't worth living because I'm not playing NFL. What? Of course, there's lots of reasons to live. You give them the right reasons to live. Anyway, there's another question over here. I was just going to say, is that uh, the answer to the question? Right? I don't even remember what questions I wrote. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it, I talked about that a little bit last a little bit last week. So when because Satan enters into Judas, and I think the, what I said la, about this last week was. Because we're in the context of St. Michael and all angels last week, and I was talking about the work of demons and the devil and how they work in our conscience to drive us to, to despair and also to tempt us towards sin. So the, when you're thinking, especially when you're thinking about how the demons work and how the devil works, it, it is this entering into us to drive us towards sin. Whenever there is sin of any kind, we know the demons are at work. So it's not necessarily that much different here to, to say the devil enters into Judas to drive him to sin. And we can actually almost say that, we, that there's times that the devil and the demons enter into us. And you, sometimes you'll even feel it, where you get this anger about or whatever the thing, I mean, anger or anxiety, great despair, leading towards suicide or something. Like, that's, this, that's the work of the devil within us, in our conscience. I mean, we're, it's not like in my head, but wherever our conscience is, like that spiritual conversation where the devil is driving us to do these evil things. Um, but it's not like he's a marionette that the devil just like, he needed, he needed to take, he needed to jump inside of somebody to do this. And so Judas becomes a, just a shell of himself. And so, so the devil does all the action. Then when the devil jumps out of Judas and the Judas is like, wait, I didn't know what was happening. It wasn't me. That's not the case. He's responsible for his own sins. And we know that mostly because Jesus himself talks about it that way. Good, good question.
Anything else? Yes. Well, I, I can't speak to the Catholic Church. Um, I, mean, I don't know how they handle that. So she was asking about schizophrenia, bipolar, and I mean, a lot of really common um, like anxiety issues that people, are, people struggle with, chemical imbalances and hormonal imbalances and so forth. Same idea. So in fact, the, um, the, the history of the Lutheran Church is actually pretty interesting on this because we acknowledge the work of the devil in our, like in the case of Judas, the devil and the demons getting involved and driving us to despair and to do crazy things, sin, right? Um, but then all of a sudden we realize, well, wait a second, there's a chemical imbalance in this individual that we can, if we supplement with certain medicines, we can actually fight against some of these depressions or urges and, and it solve kind of the problem in a non-spiritual way. Uh, this was really big, I think in like the, like the 19th century, as you start to see a lot of this development in the psychological arena, the church is looking at it and saying, oh yeah, I mean, there, we acknowledge that the devil is at work. And so, and this is like my pastoral practice today when I've got individuals struggling with a particular disorder or, or, or challenge that's causing them to have despair or anxiety or schizophrenia or those type issues. We acknowledge, of course the devil is working here to drive the person to despair. So you treat the devil with the promises of our Lord Jesus. You throw the gospel at the fire and the same God who gives us the gospel has also given us the medicine. So we treat, it's the same way that when you walk up to somebody who's like, they, they, they broke their leg. They're, they're on the ground, the leg is broken, they're screaming and you say, Jesus loves you and you walk away. Can? Jesus, bring, can, the, can the power of the gospel bring physical healing? Sure. In fact, remember the disciples in Acts are like walking past people and their shadow hits like people on the ground and it heals them? That's a, that's a weird thing, but it happens, happened. And so can the gospel bring healing? Sure. And we bring that healing, especially to the soul with, with regard to mental, challenge, mental struggles and, and disorders. But then also, this, the same way we pick up the guy with the broken leg, we take him to the ER. We pick up the girl with the disorder and we give her some meds. We, we, get, we get her the doctor who can actually help with that. But we don't, we don't say we're only gonna do one because the Lord has given us both. So we, give, we can give thanks for the sign. They're not, they're not faith and reason in that way or aren't at war with one another. But it's the same God who's given us a reason to say, hey, there's some psychological stuff here we can treat, but also, even if we treat the psychological stuff, there's also a spiritual battle that is happening in this person. Good, great question. I didn't want to talk about the Lord's Supper today anyway. No, that was good. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go after the Catholics because it's just not helpful, right? The idea is, yeah, I, I, and I don't, I don't know how they, how they approach it today, to be quite honest. I, I don't, but the, 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 the problem is, I, I do know how they go after it today because the theology can't change. 
That's the problem when you, when you have an entire system based on, when you say that God speaks through the Pope when he's speaking ex cathedra, uh, from the seat, of, uh, the seat of Rome, and God works through the councils, then he's not gonna change his opinion on these things. So when you've got a decree that says things like purgatory or indulgences or whatever the issue was 500 years ago, if, if, I, if I today say the church erred back then, then I'm, I'm undermining the credibility of the entire system, which means my own. I'm, I'm standing on this house of cards. So if I say 500 years ago, when the Pope said he was speaking on behalf of Christ, he was wrong. You should distrust men who speak on behalf of Christ. But I'm the guy who's speaking on behalf of Christ today. The whole thing collapses. So it's odds are nothing has changed that much. Um, but the way, maybe the way that they approach it or the things that they highlight or speak of, Maybe, I don't know. Uh, great, great question. So, uh, but um, let, let's, get, let's get into the room. Let's get into uh, Passover, and then we'll get to the Lord's Supper proper next week. Um, the, the, then, then came the day of unleavened bread, verse 7, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And remember, that's all that content from, from Exodus 12. It was instituted by God to be a, in fact, it says it in Exodus 12. You can... Um, he calls it to so put the blood on the door to doorposts. Um, let none of it remain until morning for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the man and beast. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you, then I will strike the land of Egypt. So there's like practical, immediate, the Passover is doing something. Then it says, verse 14 of chapter 12 of Exodus, this day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you will remove the leaven from your house on and on. So it's a memorial day in the sense that every single year, every Passover, the father has an opportunity to remind the kids how merciful their God is, how God, your God, led us out of Egypt, out of bondage, into the promised land. And every year we're going to talk about that. We're going to have a chance, to oppor an opportunity to remember what God has done. But it's also God is actually doing something in the Passover event itself. So what we have going on is a a, a meal of remembrance that actually does something. Now that's going to come up in the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me, but it's for the forgiveness of sins. It is a memorial meal, but it's not only a memorial meal. It's not just that we're remembering what Jesus did, but in the meal itself, God is doing something to us as he did at the Passover. So both, there's a lot of Passover connections here. So Jesus sent Peter and John, the big, the the two are the main leaders in the church, the New Testament church, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. It's like, that might sound like a weird thing. You're walking to a big city, there's people carrying jars of water everywhere. But in this era especially, it, it was typically given to the woman to carry the jar of water and the men are doing other things. So like to see a guy carrying a jar of water would have stood out to them and he's gonna actually walk straight up to them and meet them. 
follow that guy into the house that he enters, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover of my disciples? Same word for guest room here at the end of Jesus's ministry, like right before he's betrayed and crucified and died, we get this guest room. Do you remember the first time this, the same word comes up in, the, in Luke? There was no room in the guest room. Same word, same exact word. So, he's, so there's no, no room in the inn, but he, he's, he's, he, they take him out to the barn behind the inn, and now there's room in the guest room for him. That's just an interesting connection there. You've got these bookends of Luke, this inn showing up. Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Passover is such a big deal. It's like you only, you only go to Thanksgiving dinner with your family, right? It's, it's, it's Christmas morning. You've got to go to grandma's house. Passover is for family. And what Jesus has already taught us here, who his family is. You are my father and mother and brothers, right? He says of his disciples. So he's bringing, he's, he's extending his, his family to include his, um, his disciples. And then uh, and he, the random guy you've fallen into the house, he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared it there, uh, prepared the Passover there. They went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, so, so behind this is, I mean, Jesus is, he, it's not like he has a map or like he's, he's like following instructions. Like there's a guy over there, you're going to meet this guy. Here we're seeing the omniscient knowledge of Jesus as God, who he's, he's ultimately working out his own death. He knows where he needs to be. I need to get all the disciples together in the open, upper room. I know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. He is in charge. And yet he's working through the disciples to carry out his plan. So it's not like he's out of control. Neither is he out of control when the disciples, when the, um, when the soldiers come up and arrest him in the garden. He's, he's orchestrated the entire thing. He's like, he's seeing, he knows it's happening. He lays it out. Um, Let's see. And by the way, and that's just as, just in the same way Jesus continues in his New Testament church. He knows what's going on. He's instituted the way, the, 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 what we're supposed to do. And he also knows what's happening. There's no surprises. If anything, now with war starting to break out again, there's no surprises for the Lord Jesus. Back then and not now. He knows what he's doing. And he's still delivering his promises in the face of it. And even, in, especially here, we, we know that he works through these terrible things to accomplish what he knows to be good. May that even be our, our, our death itself. And then there they prepare the Passover. We'll pick up there uh, next, next week. The Lord be with you.